millennials, younger people, they care about their stuff. So it's like, first, they're trying to take away your stuff, the things that you like, that you have fun with, that you do with your friends. They're trying to take that away from you because somebody who was an idiot or an evil person did something. And now they're blaming you who've never done anything bad in your life for that. Isn't that garbage? And they're like, yeah, man, that's total BS. That really sucks. Like I never thought about that before. And then now you open the door of what other things have they been trying to take away from me or that they've been lying about? Because I played violent video games since I was like a five-year-old kid and I've never had the urge to, to do anything violent. So there, there has to be more to this. And that kind of opens Pandora's box and you start seeing, hey, if they lied to me about this or if they're trying to do this, maybe these other guys have been complaining about getting their guns taken away. Maybe they've got some valid points too. I should start listening to them. You know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry have spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. watching on YouTube and you see us smirking it's because we were celebrating having gone glitch free for the first time I just looked it up this will be the 56th podcast we've done and we've done zero without a glitch until this one uh, and we were celebrating 15 minutes in to Joe and Rolla doing an extraordinary uh, back and forth monologue I guess it would be a dialogue I realized I forgot to hit record and I messaged Mike through Zoom. I said, I forgot to hit record. And he said, me too. So we had to start over. <laughs> I don't even know what to say anymore. That's just a warm-up. That, that's a warm-up. That's yeah. what we had to uh, we had to get ready to go. So, so uh, Rolando, Johanna, how are you? Welcome to the show. Doing great. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> For the second time. Now that we got the warm-up out of the way, we can, we can go to the game. Thank uh, you. So, you guys are locked and loaded Latinos. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Just doing this over again. Uh, listening audience is familiar with our hijinks. Um, you guys live in Florida, and mm-hmm. we were just on your show a week ago. You guys have a yep. podcast and a YouTube channel and all sorts of cool stuff. And um, Mike and I uh, are honored to have you on our show because you bring a different perspective, and we're excited to hear about that. But for the listening audience, um, why don't you introduce yourselves again? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Tell us your background and how you got into advocacy and all that good stuff. No problem. Well, I'm Rolando. This is my wife, Johanna. Uh, we've been married for about 11 years now. and uh, Married for three. Yeah, married for three. And man, that's a really long time. So that's yeah. pretty crazy now. Uh, and really the crazy thing about, I say it's crazy because over the last three years that we've been married, that's pretty much when our advocacy began. Literally a month before is yeah, when we got exactly into advocacy. Yeah, it was exactly a month before yep. that we decided to take the jump. Mm-hmm. So, so we we started a month before we got married, and since then it's been a crazy ride from going through advocacy, starting a podcast, and now you know expanding our YouTube audience and and gaining different partnerships. That's kind of grown out of that. That was completely unexpected. So 
yeah, it's been a wild ride. But uh, how did we get into advocacy in the first place? So I would say I've, uh, I came from a conservative uh, background. My dad was a naval officer for 25 years. So I was a Navy brat growing up. Didn't really have guns in the household, but always pro-constitution, pro-freedom. Uh, Puerto Rico has pretty strict gun laws. So my parents never really got into gun ownership um, until recently. My, my dad actually bought his first gun about a year ago because of me. You got a Glock. Yeah. So that was pretty <laughs> awesome. But as far as getting into guns, getting into advocacy, I bought my first gun when I was 21 years old. And it was really my friends that came back from the war on terror that influenced a lot of my you know passion for firearms, taught me how to shoot. Uh, everything from ARs and AKs, Benelli M4s, uh, Beretta M9s, all that, uh, pretty much all the stuff that they used in the military got me uh, into it. And I'd say like a lot of other people, I was a pretty casual gun owner, uh, meaning that I kind of took the Second Amendment for granted. It was something that we had in the United States and living in Florida, you could always buy pretty much whatever gun you wanted to buy. It was, I never really saw any um major obstacles at the time. I didn't realize what the NFA was or all these other restrictions that we had, but I had a very positive, you know, experience with firearms just because of the exposure I was given and never really worried about it. Cause I lived in a Republican state. So I was like, yeah, Florida's awesome. It's the gunshine state. We're never going to have any issues here. We're the first state that had concealed carry permits. So we're leading the way on this stuff. Um, I met Joe 11 years ago. And by the third date, I knew I was like, okay, Joe's got to know that I own a firearm because I want to make sure that any woman I'm with that I'm, you know, planning on getting married to, she knows that I have this and that she's comfortable with it. So I need to give her the opportunity now to basically get out if she's not into it, but that's not what happened. What happened? So I never really thought about it. I'd always had just kind of a very neutral position on guns. I was very excited. As soon as you said, you want to go shooting as a heck. Yeah. And we went and we had a great time. And in fact, I loved it so much that I got out of the uh, firing range and went to the counter and bought my fir- my first gun that same day. I he we shot a 45 and <laughs> I just went that gun, but smaller because obviously, you know, mm-hmm. tiny little hands and 45. <laughs> anyway, so um, it was interesting to me because it's like I we have the complete different background. My parents were traditional immigrants from Latin America, South America, and the Caribbean. And it's interesting how for a lot of people who come from South America, Latin America, you know, the islands, um, even if they grow up with guns in their family, like my mom shot rifles and my grandfather taught her how to hunt. um, Something happens politically, I think, when they come over to the States and you know, they tend to gravitate towards um, the political party and those ideologies, but we never had those conversations at all growing up and never had any, you know, any gun speak at all in my household. It just wasn't something we did, um, but I was open to it. So the first time we actually had that conversation was when I came home and said, mom, I bought a gun. Mm-hmm. And it was a very negative um, conversation that to this day is still probably one of the biggest problems we have as a family. I was a bad influence. (laughs) My mom is not very fond of Rolando. Um, And it's caused a humongous schism that, you know, we've learned to just avoid talking about it. And, you know, that's pretty much how I deal with it. Just avoid talking about it because it's just, I know I'll never get approval on that front. Um, But, you know, to continue on, I, I basically love it and, Mm -hmm. and started growing that 
uh, side of, of, as a hobby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, uh, pretty much. So for a few years, you know, we were having a good time. We'd go out to the range, uh, shoot guns, teach other people how to shoot if they wanted to know how to shoot just basic stuff. And, uh, then, you know, uh, February 14th in 2018 happened, uh, you know, it was Parkland Marjorie Stoneman Douglas high school. And that kind of changed everything because being in a state that had a Republican governor and a Republican supermajority, I never would have expected that they would have basically turned uh, turned on us and betrayed us. So Florida enacted red flag laws that are pretty much the model for a lot of red flag uh, laws throughout the country uh, at this point. And they increased the purchase age of long guns from 18 to 21. So when that happened, I immediately realized, okay, there is no political party that really has our best interests in mind. They will all betray you when it's politically expedient for them. So that's when we've been off of social media for about four or five years. It was great uh, avoiding all that drama and BS that you see online. But we realized, okay, we have to get involved with this because there's no excuse that in a state like Florida, something like this can happen. And as more and more, you know, uh, facts about what happened in Parkland came out, the multiple failures by not only just local, state, and federal law enforcement all along the way, the fact that the police, similar to what happened in Uvalde recently, did not uh, did not go into the school to uh, neutralize the threat quickly enough. It just made us realize we have to get involved with this and we have to do something about it. Yeah. And I did want to say that for Rolando, was very political mm-hmm. about freedom. And for me, there was an emotional component to it as well. Um, that ties, you know, my experience as becoming an advocate to the Parkland shooting, even though I was not at all involved in Parkland, I, you know, have no, nobody that I know was there. Um, it's completely emotional. I was in Parkland at the time of the shooting. I, at the time I did not know what was going on. I was outdoors about a mile or so away from the school, babysitting my two-year-old niece. And I found out about the situation afterwards. And it was just like a gut punch reaction. And my reaction was, I, if, if something had happened and this was all just mental, like, you know, just getting, wow, what if he had come in this direction? Cause it was, you know, once you, you hear the details, like the kid had left to school, walked around, then went back. So I was like, what if he had come in this direction? I was not at the time at all prepared to defend my family member, my, my baby niece. And cause back then I was a gun owner. I did have a concealed carry license, but I was very casual about it. And that was the moment that I knew that I can never do that again, that I had to always be prepared. And I always see that as one of the two reactions that can happen from a tragedy like that, where you can actually get become where I don't, I don't want to say like the, I don't want to be insulting to them, but mm-hmm. the, I don't want to say the lazy way, but the easy way or, or of, of reacting to a tragedy, in my opinion, like that would be blame the gun, you know, go the route of, you know, let's shut this entire thing down of, of guns down because that's the only way to save somebody again versus the opposite reaction, which can happen to a lot of people as well as I need to become a protector and be ready if that ever happens. So I took the route of that mentally and just knew that I had to be a protector and that's, I guess, how it differed between you mm-hmm. and I. Yep. Um, we both had a reaction to that event, and it was kind of, regardless, it led us to the same place. Absolutely. 
And, uh, you know, after that happened, you know, I was, I told Joe, we got to get involved. She joined IG, uh, Instagram and started following a lot of different advocates. Uh, Masha Ray was the most prominent one at the time. I'd been following Coleon Noir for a while and I really started paying attention to, uh, his message. Got to see a few different shows that he had with, with this gentleman called Kevin Dixie outside of St. Louis. And I was like, this guy is pretty cool. I wonder what his deal is. And so I eventually started following Kevin. Uh, we did uh, follow Mike back in the day, your, your co-host here. And we kind of got connected with that entire group. And we found out that there was going to be a Second Amendment rally going on in Washington, D.C. in 2019. Uh, I, you know, I'd spoken to a lot of people online about the Gun Rights Policy Conference, GRPC, didn't have a chance to make it there. So I told Joe that one was too short for me to too short a notice for me to go to. But the next event advocacy event that happens, I'm going no matter what. And Joe was like, go for it. So heard about the 2A rally. Uh, as soon as it was announced, I bought my tickets and posted online. And I think it was probably Rob Pincus who was helping organize. It was like you were the first dude that actually signed up and was committed to go. Um, that's pretty cool. So we went to that and Joe kind of uh, we got invited uh, by a few of the Second Amendment mm-hmm. advocates to a breakfast. It was uh, Tony Simon, uh, Kevin Dixie, Todd, Cheryl Todd, Todd was there. Uh, I Jarrah believe Jarrah Hutchins was there. I believe also uh, Tim Knight and Rebecca Schmoy were also there and a couple of other people. And, you know, sitting down with a lot of people that we had been following on the Internet, that we knew their bona, f- uh, their bona fides and all that. It was a big deal. You know, it was like, wow, I can't believe that these people are taking their time to, uh, you know, kind of help bring us up and, and explain to us what it means to be an advocate. So we had a breakfast with them at, a, at an Airbnb that they were renting. We walked over to the Capitol, got to watch all of the uh, all the awesome speeches. And I'd already known, OK, this is exactly what I want to do and where I want to be. And Joe at first was like, I, you know, I'll be like the woman behind the man. That's I'll support you. Yeah, that's what like, she said. Everybody said, well, you're, you're going to do this too. And I said, oh, absolutely not. I'm, I'm not, I don't do this. I'm going to be the person, you know, like I'll hold the camera for him. I'll support him, but, um, and I'll do whatever I can from behind the scenes, but I don't do this speaking thing. So it actually ended up changing. Uh, so the rally was on a, on Saturday, right? Mm-hmm. On Sunday, we were going doing the whole tourist thing. Um, and we were, you know, going around on the Metro. I just turned to him and I said, well, you got to come up with some kind of silly stick stick name for me because I'm going to do it with you <laughs> because, you know, I think I just, again, it was an emotional thing for me. Um, I actually like cried watching some of the speeches and I just felt like emotionally connected. I think Katie's speech, Kevin Dixie's speech was really powerful. Um, Gabby Franco, you know, talked about Venezuela and that's something that I'm very passionate about um, because I got to see venezuela basically morph into what it is now and um i don't know if you guys follow south american politics but my mother's side of the family is colombian and they just elected socialists <laughs> socialists yeah. as well so i'm like well there goes colombia so um i am very passionate about rights because of that you know getting to grow up and watch you know that history unfold before me venezuela being one of the most powerful countries um, in South America that we always looked up to, mm-hmm. um, you know, my mom's side of the family being like neighbors to them and, and, you know, that you just always have that kind of knowledge of, of, I don't know if anybody else does that, but in Hispanics, we, we closely follow, um, international politics and whatnot. So, uh, that was actually really important to me watching Gabby's speech and her experience growing up in Venezuela and seeing her country mm-hmm. kind of fall like that. 
Um, and then I don't know, I just decided, you know, I got to just kind of grow up here and just do it too. Mm-hmm. Yep. You guys laid so, out a lot of information there. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I love, I, love, I, know. I love it when we have guests on who just carry the show for us. It makes our jobs easier. And, and it's, and it's funny because I think the moment that we really became committed to it was actually at Mike's house. Yes. Uh, we got to hang out while Argo Mike wasn't even there. Argo J. How can we forget Argo J? Argo J is one of our, he's like a brother to us now. He told us, uh, he invited us to shot show. He was going to release a new rifle at the time, the Bravo Oscar. And he, when we got there, he's like, Hey, I'm hanging out with Tony and KD. We're hanging out at Mike Sedini's house. You guys should cry, uh, catch an Uber and hang out. So I remember Mike had to go. I, I think you had to go pick up your wife or something. You had to go. No, he was going out with his Oh wife. yeah. He, you you were going. Yeah. Date. Yeah. You guys went out before <laughs> us and then we met up with you guys later on with Maj and all of them. But when you were gone, we were sitting in the back having some cigars and KD you know, we we're having fun, having a good time. Then Katie turns to us and he gets his serious face. And he's like, so what are you guys going to do? Like, what's going to be your approach to advocacy? Like, what are you, what, what's, your what's, what's your deal? What's the plan? We're like, Ugh, oh my God, Katie, just put I us just on the spot here. Like what, it. like, what are we going to do? And uh, so we kind of talked about, you know, some of our ideas and Katie was like, that sounds good. That's good. I like that. And, uh, but that moment was like, okay. Someone like, yeah, if someone like Kevin Dixie's like, you guys have potential, like you guys should be doing something like, what are you going to do? Put us on the spot. It was great. And I think from that moment, we're just blessed to have so many people like KD as mentors that have, you know, brought us in and they've always been honest with us. You know, they, they don't, you know, uh, blow smoke up our butts or anything like that. They've always been like, you guys are good at this. This is the potential that you have. I think you guys can, you know, you can make something out of it. So that was kind of the next boost at that moment that took us on this trajectory. Well, confidence boost. Yeah, definitely. Because yeah. it's, it's kind of very, I mean, I especially still feel sometimes intimidated and you get that imposter syndrome, like why should my voice matter at all? You know, and, you know, it, it's, it's really reassuring to, you know, I still surprise when our podcast comes on every, every week and people show up to listen to it and want to hear what we have to say. And, you know, it's, it's pretty good. So, mm-hmm. you know, it makes us keep going. <laughs> Absolutely. And that concludes our show. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs> I, wanna, yeah, I, I, have ahead, I have a question. I have a question. Of course. Um, so with the exception of like Edgar from guns for everyone, mm-hmm. right. I really feel like there's, there's not, I mean, maybe I'm screwing this up, but there's not too many people no. that have a Hispanic background. Yeah, no, it's, know, it's actually pretty. Accurate. You're pretty. You're pretty accurate. It's Gabby, uh, Franco, Edgar, yep. us. Yeah, yeah. When when you get addresses like when we get messages, sometimes like, well, your guys are the Latinos in the gun community. I was like, whoa, whoa. I was like, we're pretty novice here. We're still, I still consider we, ourselves fairly I'll new. I'll be honest, but. being Latino, definitely like people wanted to hear our voice and our opinion. Um, pretty early on in the gate, out of the gate, we got invites to go be speakers at different events, and because they wanted to hear that different perspective because it's not you know you know mm-hmm. that prominent often, unfortunately yeah, yeah. You, so that's actually accurate yeah mm-hmm. it, it sounds uh real similar to my journey um not to make this about me uh, but it's I, I i come from the mental health field there's not a lot of mental health practitioners who are gun owners who are out about it uh, mm-hmm. very very few and it also sounds like yehuda's journey and yeah. uh, there's not a lot of Jews who are gun owners who are out about it. And I want to bring this back to the Latino demographic that you guys, you know, we're going to label the, the, the representatives here, fair, <laughs> fair though it may be. Um, 
but help help us understand, help the listening audience understand why that's so rare. And I th- I think I know the answer based on my own experiences and talking to Yehuda for as much as I have. But like share share why that is. I think you know I think Joe alluded to it with the with the politics, but mm-hmm. it can't just be that, right? Is it something? It's I, I think it's a multitude of reasons. First of all. Uh, I think a lot of people forget that Hispanics are not a monolithic community. There's a lot of rivalries and it's kind of like the Asian community where you have a lot of, yes, maybe you're considered to be a singular race, even though most Latinos are pretty much mutts were mixed with everything. Native Americans, Europeans, and, or you have someone uh, like me that is actually a mutt and has different Hispanics in them. Yeah. So, uh, so we always have have that tradition. There's rivalries between South American countries and some countries hate each other and, that's just kind of how it is. So it's like herding cats. So when you say Latino, some people like Edgar doesn't call himself no, Latino. He no, says, I'm Mexican. He's very clear about that. So, yep. so that's how it is. So, you know, that's a different perspective. That's how people look at it. I'm Puerto Rican. So some other Hispanics look down upon me because they're like, well, you're a U.S. citizen off the bat. You don't have to worry about immigration. And yeah, I don't care about immigration policy. <laughs> but but uh, but that that also has its own you know barriers to entry and things like that. So it's it is a lot like herding cats. Uh, I think that the, I mean, I think that one political party, the, the Democrat party is very effective at funneling Hispanics in and basically monopolizing that. Unfortunately, I hate to bring specific politics, but that's pretty much how it is. And you see the targeting. Uh, Latin news is very biased. If you think that, yeah. I feel like American media has caught up to how bad Latin American media was and their sensationalism and basically being pretty negative about things, I think. Yeah, I, I had forgotten um, how biased it was until I moved out because I'd gone to college, moved out for that, then came back. So my parents are a little bit older and I was the youngest one. So I moved back for a few years to like kind of caretake as well. So after leaving, I, and it was just one of those things that, you know, his Spanish TV was on at all times. Like we were, we were super Hispanic. Like mm-hmm. I, it's a common joke on, uh, our show, like what movies, because we do a pop culture sec- uh, segment of our show. It's like, what movie Joe hasn't seen from the 80s or 90s? Let's get her to watch it and give her a review. <laughs> so, like I watched like Alien for the first time like um, a few months ago and everybody's like, I cannot believe this. And um, so, yeah, so I like came back to the house and I just sat on the couch after I'd been gone for a few months and then was like, oh, wow, like, ah. Uh, is it always been this way? Mm-hmm. Like they don't, it's the whole like fair and balanced thing. I'm, I'm using a tagline from Fox news or <laughs> you know, like, wow. Um, that is the complete opposite of that. So it, it wasn't just, it wasn't news. It was like opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really kind of shocking because I, I was just used to it. I didn't, I didn't realize until I kind of left and watched mm-hmm. like non-Hispanic news and realized, wow, that's not what really should be happening. Yeah. I think in journalism. <laughs> uh, two other big factors for a lot of, I think for a lot of uh, Hispanics. Well, religion is the second one I was going to say, but you read yeah. my mind already. Religion is a big factor because uh, most of South America is very Catholic, but it's a different type of, uh, what was the term? Because there's, um, in the U.S., we're very evangelical. In South America, it's a little bit different. So I think in the U.S., there's a lot of prosperity gospel, so a lot of basically positive affirmation. Uh, people like Joel Osteen, they're kind of less priests and more just positive motivational speakers, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. That's very prominent in the U.S. In South America, 
it's very much about community service. That's really what the church is about. So it's very communal. I, I don't want to say socialistic, but that's kind of like where it really moves that very communal uh, aspect of, of looking at things. So the church is very prominent. Uh, a lot of Christians don't believe in violence or even being able to defend yourself, which I think is pretty ridiculous. And it kind of contradicts, I think, what actually is in the Bible. Uh, I'm sure you've had conversations with Yehuda about that, dealing with Judaism as well. Uh, I also think that a lot of the countries in South America have been unstable. They have a lot of, uh, there's a lot of socialism, dictatorships, drug cartels, and crime. So they have a very negative, basically everybody that you run into that has a gun is usually a bad character. Either they're a member of the corrupt government or, uh, you know, drug cartel or something like that. So there's a very negative uh, connotation when it comes to firearms. Yeah, no matter what country you're going to find, you know, Venezuela and Cuba being like the most extreme ones, um, which is actually ironic because it's like the people who come out of those countries are actually very pro-gun because they've experienced, you know, like the severe side of it where they, um, you know, aren't are basically uh, victims of, of a tyrannical government where they're just oppressed. Mm -hmm. So extreme oppression will lead to you wanting to have guns. But the rest of the countries tend to have some kind of at least instability, like you said, some kind mm -hmm. of form of. Um, violent history like um, Disney just came out with that movie a little while ago, Encanto, which a lot of people, if you have kids, you've probably watched it, um, alludes to the violent history of Colombia. And my mom recently watched it. Actually, I think we watched it in, over Christmas mm -hmm. with the kids. And my mom was like, oh my God. And she like got all teary eyed. She's like, I can't believe they're making a movie about like what my parents and I went through. And I, I'd heard the story growing up about how my mom had to hide in the attic because the political, um, you know, rivals of were were hunting down my grandfather to kill him. So to you know, there's always like violence and, and instability that mm -hmm. can lead to that. Um, definitely, religion is a big one. You know, one of the tools my mother uses to argue with me about guns is, well, I'm afraid that you're going to become a sinner because you're going to kill somebody. And I kind of argue, well, I'm not going to do that unless I am faced with the choice of defending my life. So would you rather I defend my life or let myself die? And I don't know. I feel like uh, only Hispanics have that kind of like, I don't want to say dramatic, but like extreme kind of, you know, I've heard this before because um, the, who is the gentleman that we met at, uh, Katie's trailer. He told me that he also had a very similar conversation with mm -hmm. his mother. Yeah. So we bonded over, we met at um, CCF. Yeah. yeah. CCF uh, designs. Mm -hmm. He and I, um, he's Mexican and he and I both had the conversation about how much our mothers were so much alike. And, um, you know, it was my mother literally said, well, God will not let that happen to you. I'm like, Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the kind of Catholicism that yeah. you get a lot in South America and Central America. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's crazy to hear somebody say, God will not let that happen to you who had literally had to hide in the yes. attic. Well, yeah. You know, it's like, well, maybe God provided the attic. But um, what, what was the second one, Rollo? Uh, it was uh, just the corrupt governments oh, and okay. socialism, yeah, corrupt, yeah. And corrupt governments and uh, and religion. So there's a certain irony there about people fleeing corrupt governments and socialism to a country that doesn't have that without the understanding of how this country got not mm -hmm. corrupt and socialistic. I mean, we could debate whether or not that's you know an emerging trend now, but the point is the founding of it was to 
establish that that's not going to happen. And the way you do that is through force or at least equivalent mm-hmm. force against the, the would-be authoritarians. Uh, so it's, it's weird that that's uh, lost uh, somewhere in the narrative. I, I, f- I feel like the trend I've been seeing more lately, too, is because now, now you, you see the term people of color. So it's almost like they've tried to clump all minorities together. So some of the things I've heard some like Latinos say online are what I've heard basically black anti-gun activists say. And I'm like, you're Hispanic. Your history is different. So I'm not sure why you're being persuaded by this argument. And I'm not sure why you can't see that the country's come a long way. There's almost this myth and it's so stupid. And you you probably see it on time uh, online all the time. It's like, well, if black people or brown people ever get guns, then there will definitely be gun control. And I'm like, yeah, there's plenty of us. And that's not what decides gun control at all. If anything, it's the uh, it's the history, the racist history of gun control. I'm wearing Maj Sheree's shirt. All gun control is racist was perpetrated by the government. So why would you trust the government that perpetuated these policies throughout the past and or tacitly allowed them in the case of, you know, different communities that'd be like, well, I'm not going to arrest those people if they lynch people or do something bad. Um, How would you not want guns to be able to defend yourself, especially when you know the history of like, there are people put blood, sweat, tears in their lives on the line to get the freedoms and to get equal rights in this country. And you're almost spitting in their face by saying, well, no, I want to, I want these rights to be taken away from me. It's like, what? It's so counterproductive. The same exact thing. A lot of these people have come over. Yeah illegally and then gotten papers and become citizens like putting blood, sweat and tears into mm-hmm. coming over for freedoms. And then they want to come to this country and give them up. So it makes no sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe it's a, uh, just what you alluded to earlier. It's like you, they become casual, right? They become mm-hmm. complacent. Um, you know, when's the last time Americans specifically or the West broadly really had to struggle for anything? I mean, it's four mm-hmm. generations removed from that, even though it's essentially one lifetime in mm-hmm. years, you know, 80-ish years. Uh, but we don't know not prosperity. We don't mm-hmm. know uh, struggle. We don't know distress tolerance. That's one of the things I talk about a lot is how we've lost the ability to just sit in not getting what we want and be mm-hmm. patient with the outcome and embrace mystery and all that stuff. We've been boxed in by guarantees and quantifiable results. And, and by the way, the speed of everything has, has mm-hmm. accelerated greatly. So it's possible that it's like, well, we, we got here. Now we can relax with no concern for the continued advocacy of what got you there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we see it with people who graduate college. It's like, well, I graduated college. Now give me a job. It's like, you mm-hmm. got to maintain that job. <laughs> you got to keep up your competence. You got to show up on time. Uh, it's not yep. just, it's not just a paycheck's going to arrive in your inbox and, uh, you can go buy your boats and jet skis. Uh, you got to keep working. So, um, you know, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe it's just, that's the simple explanation is we've mm-hmm. forgotten because it's like, well, I've done enough and I can just kick back and relax. I don't know. No, I mean, I, we talk about that all the time. Life's gotten too simple that we've lost kind of like an urgency to kind of feel anything. Well, I mean, look, when I when I realized that the cat food is is out and Joe's like, oh, my gosh, we don't have any cat food. And I'm like, don't worry about it. I go on Amazon and two hours later, it's delivered to my house. That shows you kind of the decadence of our society. Yeah. Not that those things, uh, those things are logistical miracles. And I think that they're great uh, that we've reached that point. But they take away all of the work and difficulty and you take for granted everything. And there are just so many people that assume, 
well, food comes from the store. It was like, no, it got there from somewhere else. There were trucks that brought it there. There were farmers that uh, harvested the the crops or grew, uh, you know, husbanded the animals, uh, all of this stuff. And they completely see that it's all invisible and completely taken for granted. And the fact that you can have conversations like right now we're, we're across the country, we can have these conversations, that's powerful. But at the same time, it's kind of like the old cliche with great power comes great responsibility. Mm-hmm. We were never responsible to ourselves to keep our edge and to be prepared for things and actually learn how to be more self-sufficient and prepare for, hey, well, if something terrible happens and you can't get food or there's a natural disaster or something like that, living in South Florida, we have to deal with that all the time. So we have to make sure that we've always got canned food and things ready to go because of hurricanes. Uh you're not prepared for that. You're going to suffer pretty greatly if any adversity hits your way, even the most simplest thing. Yeah, there's so. a weird, uh, there's a weird inflection that's happened too, where like, if something does happen, I, I want to blame somebody rather than take responsibility for self. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things you you outline there is a is actually a mindfulness exercise we do sometimes in in our profession where we ask somebody to pick up a, a piece of something. I got some uh, chocolate covered raisins right here that I was snacking on, but it's like, all right, let's, let's pause for a second and consider everything that went into this. And, you mm-hmm. know, from the growing of the grape and the farmers who grew the grape and the people who picked it and the processing plant and the people who work in the processing plant and the dehydration and who made the dehydrator and the conveyor belt that the, all the grapes go on. And then the chocolate and that co- grows too from cocoa beans and we got to get the mm-hmm. cocoa nibs and we got to process those. And then, and then the trucks and the logistics and the fuel that goes in the trucks and who mines the oil, who processes the oil, turns it into fuel to get to the trucks to, you know, all, all the things, the packaging, mm-hmm. the store, the manager of the store, the employee of the store, the person who taught the employee how to use the cash register. And I mean, you could take that exercise for, I mean, I just blew through it in a few seconds, but you could make mm-hmm. a whole half hour out of that and just being, you know, that's what we would loosely call mindfulness. It's like being mindful has a, a gratitude undertone. And that's something I think mm-hmm. we've lost too is part of the responsibility is acknowledging that we can be grateful for things and don't expect them. And so when those things are absent, uh, we have to make accommodations. Maybe I, don't, I go without chocolate-covered raisins if the supply chains get disrupted, or maybe I um, throw a fit and yell at mm-hmm. the supermarket for not carrying them. And yep. increasingly, I'm seeing people just throwing fits because we don't know how to tolerate distress anymore. I think we'll see plenty more of that in the next few months, too, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. So, Mike, look like I love that, by the way, that mindfulness. It's like it brings me not to... Yeah. minimize that but it brings me back to like uh a, i learned about that from jason mraz like, <laughs> like i don't even know how many years ago but he he uh named one of his um Pay paradise and put up a parking lot is that the one you're thinking not at all. <laughs> yeah he uh, uh named an album after a um a restaurant in California called Cafe Gratitude, and I actually went and visited it. Um, that was a little. I'm a vegan, by the way, or was at the time a vegan, so I was I was very much into mindfulness and um, being grateful for where things come from and all that. So I actually went and visited that place. Yeah, nice. <laughs> and I had this giant poster that says, "What are you grateful for?" on my wall growing up because that's just that's a good way to kind of like ground yourself in life. What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? We're a vegan. Usually, don't hear that phrase very often. I eat too much pizza and vegan cheese is, is terrible. Yeah, so Italian fault. food's too good. So she's like, cheese is, is, is too good. There's no substitute for it. That's I'm good. S- I'm still a vegetarian, but basically, you know, I think the downfall of the veganism happened because we, you know, he would be like, we're getting pizza. And then I'll be like, I'll pull the cheese off the pizza. And then there was a little ch- chunk of cheese that was still on there. And I 
ate it and it was so good. <laughs> and then that was a slow, that was a slow. Got decline. her into guns. She eats cheese now. Gosh, this dude's a terrible influence. Right, that's why you got problems with the mother-in-law. I know. That's yeah. why. It's the opposite. It's the opposite for her. My parents love her like a daughter. I mean, what's so, not to love? I know, of course. I, I know, I know. I figured it out pretty early on. So, is <laughs> it, is that problematic? And I mean, not to get too personal, but is that problematic between you as a couple? Uh, as a couple, not really. My parents? Yeah. Well, we it's, just avoid my. Parents. Yeah, we. That's yeah. that's the unfortunate thing. So it's basically it's a one sided relationship. So Joe visits my family. They're super cool with us. They're very proud of. Uh, of what we've done with advocacy and on YouTube, my dad will watch our YouTube videos. He'll be in the chat and he'll participate and he loves it. Uh, obviously Joe's family is kind of the opposite of that. So. Yeah. Um, I am in more ways than one, the black sheep of the family. Um, and I guess uh, my family is a little bit interesting. We, I grew up as a vegetarian and then a vegan and um, you know, like I said, my mom is extremely religious and it's just, I guess, we believe in, we grew up believing very much in don't harm things and other things. And it's, it's just, it's a really hard concept for my family members to understand how I'm okay with having a gun when I believe, I don't even believe in killing an animal for food. So that's actually been, none of my siblings support me in anything that I do. Um, I, actually have had like huge i'm very very close to my siblings i've had huge huge rows with my sister um she's almost caused conflict because one of the uh one of her in-laws so uh sibling in-laws actually purchased a firearm yes, and that caused almost, a conflict and we taught how, we taught them how to shoot um because mm -hmm. my uh my i have an in-law who you know was one of the few support family members who said you know what i actually believe in what you're doing can you help me and she bought a gun and i taught her how to shoot mm -hmm. And to this day, that still causes. I think her there. background may influence that because yeah. she's she's from China and she was kind of, you know, not to go too deep. I think she was one of the children that would have been affected by the one child policy. So yeah. she had to get her family had to basically get her out of there. So I think she's always never taken for granted what she has in the U.S. Yeah. So she's like, hey, you know, why shouldn't I own a firearm? Yeah. So, so she was very open minded, but it definitely caused a, a rift in the relationship. Yeah. So the way I handle my family is I just pretend like I just, this is a side of my life that I do not talk about at all. And they don't interact with at all. And they just pretend it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So yeah. help, help, help me, help me, the listening audience. And, and for me, when I talk to other people about this, how do you reconcile that apparent contradiction between not harming, living a life of peace, and you know, libertarians would say non-aggression with mm -hmm. personal defense. Because I have my own words I would put to it. I want to hear yours though. Uh, do you want me to go first? Yeah, you go. First. Okay. Uh, for me, there really is no contradiction because ultimately you want to survive, and at the end of the day, the priority, you, uh, the individual priority, will always come down to survival. So if you threaten my survival, I need to take an action to do that. If you threaten the survival of my spouse or my family, it's almost doubly so. So I will never go out of the way to, you know, have aggression towards anybody. But if aggression comes my way, I would, I would hope that I don't hesitate in that moment to do what needs to be done. And I don't think that that's contradictory. If you want to go back to the religious aspect. There was even a moment when one of the Jew, Jewish slaves was being beaten by an Egyptian overseer and Moses killed the guy. So, I mean, how do you judge that? And, and I'll say this to any Christian too. 
thou it's not thou shalt not kill it's thou shalt not murder because killing and right. de- defense is different than murder killing with murder is malice you want to kill somebody and take their life killing and self-defense is nothing it's not not the same at all that's why there's a delineation even in law and i think that it's ridiculous that people don't uh make that parallel and i also make the parallel of a god is only as powerful god is only as powerful as his flock and his worshipers if all his worshipers are dead then what there's no religion essentially. So why would God not want people to preserve themselves and keep, you know, keep the faith going and spread the gospel. If you can't do that, if somebody's trying to kill you. you So obviously I've had those conversations and those debates with them and, you know, it, it kind of just devolves to, well, I just wouldn't use a gun. I just wouldn't, I would just not, I would just choose to die. And I don't believe them. I, I actually think it's human instinct to want to defend yourself. You know, if, especially if you have kids, you know, I've, I've challenged them. Like, I very much doubt that if your child was going to be shot, that you wouldn't jump in front of your child and try to defend them, um, you know, by any means necessary. So I just, I just don't think that they've allowed themselves or people who feel this way don't allow themselves to actually like mentally get to that point or, you know, And if they ever do, I I challenge them to say like, well, how do you feel at this moment? Mm -hmm. I I very much doubt they're going to have non-aggression. Yeah. I think people just live kind of like what we were saying, that the society is so comfortable that it's incomprehensible for a lot of people to think that anything bad can happen from getting cancer or some sort of disease to, you know, you being uh, mugged by somebody and they might kill you. So we live in that bubble of almost denial. It's, it's It's a sense of denial, I feel. And not understanding, even within this own country, that there are certain areas that are more dangerous than others. Uh, that's kind of spreading out everywhere. We've heard of stories of rich socialites in California now getting their houses robbed and a woman was murdered and she lives in a million dollar mansion. So there's no really escape from human nature. If you look throughout history, we're probably in, in the most peaceful era in history, uh, broadly in a broad sense. So but that doesn't mean that bad things still can't happen and you need to be prepared for it. I think too many people live in that bubble. They don't want to, they don't want to be exposed to that and they don't want to think about it. And I think when you have a society where words are violence, <laughs> I mean, if we're, if we're, if we're that far gone, then if you're thinking that words are violence then that clearly means that you've never experienced physical violence, in my yeah. opinion, if that's, if you've turned the change, the definition to that point, if that words can physically harm you somehow. Yeah, I think people, there, there's a sense of, I always have this, like, compared to, like, the way I grew up, it was very much like Star Trek to me, right? Mm-hmm. My neighborhood, there was just, like, all different cultures, all different types yeah. of people, and we all got along great, mm-hmm. and everybody outside of the neighborhood was, like, the enemy out in space, right? Yeah. But in our world, it was perfect, right? Like, we all, we were all cool, it was the same friends, it was all this stuff. And I think people do that with life, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Especially when they, like you said, they've made it. They want to kind of see the world as like, you know, nothing good, bad can happen in here. You know, it just, I think it's just, you know, people dream. I totally agree. And I think sometimes it's almost an elitism to it because I mean, I, I don't know the statistics off my hand, off the top of my head, but when you look at, let's take the schools, for example, because Parkland was a big uh, turning point for us. You see a lot of inner city schools have metal detectors. They have more police officers. And you usually don't hear about shootings in those kinds of schools, maybe in the area around it, unfortunately, but not in that position. So I almost feel it's this arrogant or almost elitism 
for people that may live in suburban environments to think, well, this is effective here. You have armed guards at your bank. Your children are more valuable than your money. I don't understand why you would not want to protect your children with armed guards or have this exposure. And it's like, well, well, we don't want to expose them to security. It's not going to traumatize them if they understand what the reason is. You explain to your children from the start, like, this is the way that things are. Uh, You know, there are bad people that do things. This helps prevent bad people from hurting you. And they're going to be like, okay, they're not going to think it's a big deal, even if, oh, but if they see a police officer or like a retired soldier with a gun, that's going to try. No, it's not because we live in a country with the second amendment. If you teach people about the traditions of gun ownership from childhood, they're never going to blink a bat an eyelash to seeing somebody walking around with an AR or something like that. Yeah. One of the, one of the coolest things someone ever said to me, um, this gentleman was from Oakland. California. And if anyone knows anything about oh, Oakland, yeah. there's some parts of Oakland that's, that's pretty tough. And um, he, he was responsible, like like one of the, the programs that he worked on was, uh, you know, because people, people in the hood, they don't call the cops, right? Because yeah. you don't want the heat, you don't want the smoke from the neighborhood, all that stuff. So it's like nobody cooperates with the cops. Mm-hmm. And uh, the problem is that, that they were trying to save lives, right? People would get shot and then they were trying to save lives and the cops couldn't get there. Or the EMTs couldn't get there in time because no one called. So they kind of developed these things they put on top of like uh, streetlights that, you know, heard the gunshot and then notified all the local law enforcement and everybody to come. So they knew mm-hmm. to go. It was really cool. He said, uh, he's like, yeah, Mike, uh, it's, it's interesting. You know, he's like, you had these kids in Parkland, they're standing up there and they say like, oh, we don't feel safe in our school. We don't feel safe at school. He's like, where I'm from. He's like, school is where we feel safe. Home yeah. is where we feel safe. It's getting from school to home home to school is where mm-hmm. we die yeah, and we don't feel safe. And I thought about that, you know, I was like, man, it's like perspective, you know what I mean? <laughs> so one of the, going back to the idea that you train them early and they understand it and they don't bat an eyelash at it. I think it was Pincus who first introduced me to the concept of the fire extinguisher. Like nobody mm-hmm. accuses anybody of having fire extinguishers and being paranoid of fire, uh, yeah. hypervigilant thinking that the carpet's going to burst into flame at any moment. Um, and yet we teach that, right. And nobody's walking around, like just nervously anticipating outbursts of flames. Mm-hmm. Um, but if such a thing were to happen, you know, where the fire extinguisher is, you mm-hmm. know, where the evacuation route is. Um, and we don't do that with firearms, uh, yep. because reasons. And I think that your point is really well taken that if we just said, Hey, this is, this is a gun. This is what it does. There's people out there that, you know, want to do bad things to you. Here's how you protect yourself. Just the same as, you know, electrical panels can fry. You want to know where the extinguisher is and how to operate it and point in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we should be doing that because it demystifies all that surrounds that, Mm -hmm. uh, inanimate object, you know, triggers don't pull themselves. Uh, so, you know, you can, you can know that too, and know that you're still safe with this thing on your belt, uh, mm-hmm. wherever you keep it. Um, in fact, maybe even safer, uh, more, I'm getting more into the defensive shooting stuff too, mm-hmm. with regard to statistics and what gets reported and what doesn't. And there's been some ridiculous posts lately on, on Twitter about how there's more gun deaths than there are defensive, uh, uses of firearms. Like, no, there aren't. <laughs> you <laughs> not, not don't even care close. about them. Yeah. And in defensive use of a firearm does not necessarily even mean deploying it, let alone firing it. It could just mm-hmm. be presentation or i.e. brandishing uh, that says, whoa, OK, uh, I'm going to go away now. And yep. you don't hear about those things. They don't get documented as often as they should. Tony's Tony's got a podcast on it uh, about you know where they just talk about defensive shootings, mm-hmm. or defensive uses of firearms. 
And I think that's a really cool concept that needs to be popularized. And that that's part of advocacy. But I want yeah. to talk about your advocacy work because we talk about all the, you know, the the hiccups and the and the barriers and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. What are you guys doing specifically, or what do you see as the the mission? Is it is it to recruit more people into the fold, to change minds, to push different information? Uh, like, how how are you going about this? What does it look like? Uh, I think you should tell the story of how we got into a podcast in the first place, because we never, we started off not doing a podcast and just going through advocacy and the podcast kind of evolved. You're already telling the story, so go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, (laughs) I was just going to bring it up because I think. Tell the thing where you say the thing. Yeah. Okay. I'll tell the thing where I say the thing, you know, the thing. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, like when we started advocacy, we were basically kind of committed to do grassroots on the ground. We're going to learn to become firearms instructors. We got really lucky really early on and people just believed that we could do things mm-hmm. like hey you guys are advocates and we're like sure uh can you come and do this speech on this topic can you go on the podcast can or- you go on like so we were just like instantly recruited to go do sp- public speaking and go on shows and can you come and and of course covid happened so COVID. we're gonna have a an online panel for this or that. And we're like, sure, we'll do this. But COVID was actually kind of the trigger to start a podcast, you know, no pun intended because we started making different podcast appearances and Hank strange, who's uh, has a, a pretty cool uh, second amendment podcast mm-hmm. on YouTube. He invited us on his show a few times. And after each of us being on the show individually, he's like, you guys are really good at this. You can articulate your ideas. Well, you gel really well off of one another. You guys should do this as well. You should you should start your own podcast. So we did. And yeah, it worked because so many of the events that we wanted to go to to basically up our advocacy game got canceled in 2020. So we're like, this is kind of our way of doing something uh, since we can't actually go out there. Yeah. But then it ended up being um, the perfect kind of avenue for what really became our ultimate goal mm-hmm. which was yeah a lot of people will you know i'm i'm always very excited for a gun owner that is not very educated to come and learn um a lot of times you know they we may be their source of news um because they're not plugged in and they don't know what's happening politically they don't know to call oh i've got to call my senator because this is happening right now or hey here's this form to fill out because this is going on and i i you know they're going to vote on this so that's great you know that's also really important um, so that is one thing that we see as part of our advocacy, just educating people on what's going on so that they can be more active. But the bigger one is because this is something that we find a lot of whatever you want to call this, the community um, guilty of, which is basically just engaging in an echo chamber and talking amongst ourselves and having the same people that follow you commenting that you already know that they know everything that you know. You know, but how do we grow this movement? And that's getting outside of that echo chamber and convincing new minds or kind of just like destigmatizing this, whatever this is, you know, the Second Amendment guns, Mm -hmm. self-defense at whatever level you want to look at it, whether it's, you know, at the freedom level or the self-defense level, because it can it can Mm -hmm. mean different things to different people. But um, that actually ended up being the ultimate, I think. Mm-hmm. goal for both of us and we do this very very weirdly through video games yeah 
Um, I think you can see our background. Anybody that's watching on YouTube, we've got basically Marvel, like Marvel portraits and things like that from video games and uh, pop cultural big, stuff. We are. Huge. Yeah, we're huge geeks. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're massive geeks. So that was kind of always our passion, you know, before getting into the gun thing. So uh, gun websites, G webs, he's, he's awesome. He's like the advocate extraordinaire. He's, he's like the godfather behind the scenes that helps a lot of people out and really br brings all the information together on his website. One of the things that he always talked about his biggest frustrations in advocacy is that everybody comes in and it becomes like 20 chefs in the kitchen, you know, 20 cooks in the kitchen, I should say, where everybody wants to start their own organization rather than latching on and helping other people out and kind of everybody wants to make a name for themselves. So we already, we realized, I was like, we haven't been into guns for decades or anything like that. We're fairly new to this. So what is our strength? Our strength is being who we are yes. and kind of just, you know, doing what we do, trying to show an example of like, Hey, we're a married uh, couple. We're uh, just out in the real world. Like I can't tell you how many, even though I'm a shy person, how many conversations I've had at the grocery store, or if I've got the time to develop it, you know, every single person that has been around me at some point. I live in a very blue area of Florida. You know, this is the gunshine state, but mm -hmm. we live in one of the counties that is very anti-gun. Yep. Um, and just politically, just people tend to lean that way. And we have, I think, individually converted so many people who've just mm -hmm. been, um, had the, the, the opportunity to get to know us. And then, you know, you just slowly just let it kind of show that you're mm -hmm. a gun owner too. And, you know, you just destigmatize um, the concept of what a gun owner is, you know, the racist white male, mm -hmm. you know, or, or violent. And, you know, no, you just show them it's like, no, this is about whether it's again from freedom to self defense. You know, very, I've had a lot of um, success with women um, that I've, you know, whether it's a casual person and that mm -hmm. I've come into contact with or, you know, best friend for 13 years, it took her. Uh, 12 years to become a gun owner and I slowly chipped away at her and so mm -hmm. she'd be, she's a proud gun owner now. Yep. And, you know, I, I find those to be the biggest successes. Um, just getting those people who had, I never been in their life would have ever picked up a gun. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's, so it's highly individual. Mm -hmm. It's very individual. Is what oh yeah. Hearing. Yeah. 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 And, and I think it's, it's uh, and online. It's the, our goal now is oh, oh, the bigger yeah, goal. Oh yeah. Now we have a much larger goal because we've gotten, like I said, we've been very blessed with a lot of the opportunities that we've gotten uh, very early on. One of our viewers back when we only had about 300 subs on the channel, probably even less, I think like 200 something. We're at almost a thousand now. She had been watching our show. She was always very active in the chat. And one day she's like, hey, I work for Eric D. July. I was I'm a big fan of Eric D. July. He's a huge libertarian YouTuber. He also uh, hosts on the blaze sometimes. And uh, he's pretty prominent in that movement. He talks about basically freedom, libertarianism, uh, and incorporates it into pop culture and things like that. I always liked his approach. So she's like, I work for Eric. Would you guys like to be on his show? And I said, absolutely. Uh, so we got to go on his show. It was only supposed to be about an hour. We ended up talking with him for more than an hour and a half. Unfortunately, it was on January 3rd, 2020 or 2021. So three days after January 6th happened, and a lot of the things that we talked about in that interview were kind of blown out of the water mm -hmm. uh, and everything changed politically. So it never aired, but we got the opportunity to interview him again. Uh, Maj asked us to take our show to his solutionary summit, Maj Touré of Black Guns Matter. So we got exposed to a lot of other people in the libertarian community, more political side of it. And Eric happened to be there and we got to turn the tables on him and have him on our show for about an hour in person, which was great. And 
I started realizing then, I said, we're making a lot of connections outside of the gun community. People in the gun community like us and they give us a lot of opportunities, but the most difficult thing that the gun community has after we've gone to different events, we got invited to speak at the USCCA Expo, which was fantastic, but we noticed the demographic is just way too old and nobody's really doing a good job of getting the younger generations to care about the first and second amendment really, which are and the two actually, rights that are the biggest assault right now. Ironically that we, that was a topic of our, of our, of our speech that day was how do we get, um, it was minority within a minority. Yeah. yeah. How do you get more? Well, there's just two things there. How do you get more people um, within the gun community? So I think we have a two prong approach to how we talk to um, and do our advocacy, talking to your average gun owner and getting them to care about the actual political ramifications that, you know, that will affect mm-hmm. being a gun owner, which a lot of people don't care. Um, and two, how do you get people who aren't, aren't involved or who aren't gun owners um, into guns or destigmatize that and, you know, and the youth too, because it's very much apparent that, mm-hmm. um, no one's really doing any kind of education or like now because of current events, you know, the opposite is happening. Um, you know, they're doing a sand in the ostrich in the sand kind of approach, you know, let's not talk about guns. Let's keep people away from guns. Um, if anything, that's going to making it more dangerous because now we have a generation of youth that's not growing up with, um, Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts and shooting, you know, BB guns and everything. Now we're terrifying them. And, you know, that's the worst thing we could possibly do because now you're actually increasing the likelihood of accidental, um, you know, misfirings and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. If they come across a weapon. Yep. It's very similar um, to what we're doing because mm-hmm. we're trying to walk in both. It's recruiting yep. clinicians in and also recruiting the gun community to take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I I want to hover on the youth thing for a second because I want to know yeah. w- why. Like, where are the? I I don't know, and maybe Mike has an answer to this too. Where are the? Where are the gun positive kids? Because I see all the gun negative kids. They're all following David Hogg, and they're and, out there. Well, I, like, I think I think. Okay, hold on a second. I think when you draw when you draw a gun in school and your teacher like takes you to the principal's office and calls the police, that's a serious problem or, because that, that may kid, not be that kid who ate a pop tart and yeah. looked like in a the gun. shape yeah. of a gun. So we're, we're definitely like doing something to the youth, like where we're traumatizing them and we're stigmatizing this even more. But I, I personally, I think that they exist because that's what we're tapping into now. Um, I don't know if you guys play video games, but one of the top video games, uh, you know, if you follow Twitch, you know, you can see how many millions of kids watch this and, and play this. Um, our games like Fortnite and Call of Duty and they're Apex very Legends, yeah. Apex Legends. They're all very gun centric games. And I mean, I I was shocked when like my seven year old niece was like, oh, you know, Fortnite. I'm like, she's seven. I'm like, how do you know this? And she knows what you know, they, they, the guns are so realistic. Some of them like mirror like. Uh, what was it like that you were trying to figure out like what gun exactly yeah, the Beretta a- ARX yeah, yeah they mimic the exact kind of you know it's very realistic so then you become you start and then we got involved in this in this this new gaming channel that we're now involved with mm-hmm. and we first start out by becoming members and ha- making new friends in the Twitch community and it they're out there a lot of these people um look at the celebrities of now is not you know what who the kids look up to ninja and pokimane these are not people who are in movies, they're playing video games online, they're playing shooters online. That's mm-hmm. who the youth look up to. So I actually disagree that 
the youth are not involved. The youth are interested. They're just being dissuaded from and turned away from the education and learning about it responsibly. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah well, that's I think what I'm they're not they're not owning them. They're not shooting them. They're not practicing. But they're they're not learning. Yeah. Right. I, I think I think we're almost in like I I, I almost call it closeted because yeah. when you see that the most prominent games, especially in the United States, are all shooters, that tells you that Americans love guns. So you're almost denying like it's like denying Reality. some sort of urge or yeah. something like that. So it's like a subliminal like. We love guns. All of our movies have guns. All of our video games have guns, but you cannot have guns in real life. Guns are bad, but we're going to keep selling you media that has guns in it and get you excited when we add more guns to our games that are even cooler than before. And more realistic. Yeah. So the approach that I've kind of been taking is, especially recently, is it's a First and Second Amendment battle here because what was one of the first things that the Republican Party did after Uvalde? Obviously, the Democrats are trying to take guns and, and push gun control. The Republicans are looking for well, they well, we can't talk about mental health. That's way too complicated for us to talk about. People aren't or they're gonna like glaze over and say it's BS. So we're gonna blame violent video games. So there goes Ted Cruz right at the stage of the NRA conference. And he says violent video games are part of the problem. And it's like despite the fact that there have been multiple studies, psychological studies, yeah, maybe have, yeah, have you can probably testify to that. To, you know, hey, yeah. we've had these discussions before. Yeah. So, so you see all of that. Now that makes it a little bit easier because now I can go to people that play video games. I was like, they're attacking your first amendment rights right there by basically trying to censor video games and do all this stuff. I was like, it's the, the, if you've ever seen the meme with James Franco, when he's at the gallows, first time here, he's about to get hung. And this other guy's looking like, oh my God, he's panicking. It's the same thing. So it's like, huh, welcome to the club. Your first amendment rights are being threatened and politicians are threatening to take away things that you love. This is what we deal with. Guess what? First and second amendment are really close. They're necessary for one another. They have a symbiotic relationship. Maybe you should get into it. And then people are like, I never thought about that before. And it's like, yes, we have, there's a fight that we can come together here because people are trying to, you first try to go at the level, especially with younger people, they're trying to take away something that you love. So Self-defense, all that stuff, those arguments don't necessarily work out. Unfortunately, millennials, younger people, they care about their stuff. So it's like, first, they're trying to take away your stuff, the things that you like, that you have fun with, that you do with your friends. They're trying to take that away from you because somebody who was an idiot or an evil person did something, and now they're blaming you, who've never done anything bad in your life, for that. Isn't that garbage? And they're like, yeah, man, that's total BS. That really sucks. Like, I never thought about that before. And then now you open the door of, what other things have they been trying to take away from me or that they've been lying about? Because I played violent video games since I was like a five-year-old kid and I've never had the urge to, to do anything violent. So there, there has to be more to this. And that kind of opens Pandora's box and you start seeing, hey, if they lied to me about this or if they're trying to do this, maybe these other guys have been complaining about getting their guns taken away. Maybe they've got some valid points too. I should start listening to them. Then they may find the locked and loaded Latinos and they're like, they got a bunch of video game stuff behind them. That's pretty cool. But they're talking about guns and rights. What's the deal with that? I really want to know more about that. So it's kind of like a Trojan horse approach, the way that I look find at it. they us on Twitch. And yeah. then they'll be like, hey, these guys are a lot of fun. And they let's see know, what they're all about. At Fortnite and they're good at Apex Legends. And then they're like, oh, they have a YouTube channel and they'll we'll see them come in. Oh, yeah. Well, lately, especially since we started really working more on this Um you know, being part of geeks and gamers, part yeah. of, we're part of geeks and gamers. Now we're on Twitch where we're streaming, you know, you know, most people, <laughs> I don't know when most 
couples do. I don't know. But most couples probably have dinner and uh, watch TV together on the couch. We uh, we grab our dual computers and log on to Twitch and, and, you know, a few times a night, a few times a week and, you know, do our, yes, we're hanging out and having fun, but let's try to get people to also see what we're about. And, you know, it's become part of just what we do. It's mm-hmm. like, I don't know, find us, check us out, you know, and we have those people starting to trickle into our podcast. Mm-hmm. So they found us because we played video games. Then they're in the chat going, Hey, what gun do you think I should get? Hey, who do you recommend being an instructor in my area? And I think that's the most rewarding thing that that's the new, that's the new era that we're in that we've come into for advocacy. I think we're seeing many more women too, kind of taking the mantle and not being afraid of, uh, you know, putting themselves out there and saying that there are gun owners or even women in some of our chats are like, I really admire what you guys do. I would consider purchasing a gun now. Like it's, I feel comfortable seeing that, Hey, you guys are gun owners. There's nothing crazy about you. How many of these new people that you're connecting with are Hispanic? Uh, there are actually a few Hispanics. Yeah. yeah, we have gotten that. So we are the locked and loaded Latinos. I hate identity politics. I chose it because it's alliteration and it, and it kind of rolls off well, but I've seen that sometimes that makes a little bit of a difference for people. It's at least a distinguishing factor. So they can say, well, these guys are Latinos. What are they all about? And then we can't be pointed as that statistic of the monolithic Latinos. They all vote for Democrats and they hate guns and, you know, they, they believe in all this stuff. So it's kind of throwing a wrench in there too, uh, so that we can't be used by the opposition because it's like, we're clearly what we are and we don't fit into your, uh, your stereotypes that you try to push. But we do see that a lot. And I, I, I don't know how conservatives will feel about this because they hate identity politics, but you do, when you see someone who is like you, it just, it does tend to be like, Hey, I'm that too. And we definitely have that tribalism when it comes to different Hispanics, like, you know, we even saw, we, we just released some video for some unrelated thing. And, you know, somebody was like, Hey, I'm Puerto Rican too. This is great to see another Puerto Rican talking about this video game. You Mm -hmm. know, like we do that. Like anytime the world cup comes around, like everybody breaks out their t-shirts of, you know, Oh, I'm supporting Peru. Oh, I'm supporting Colombia. It's like, Mm -hmm. we all break down to our, you know, Texan, Texans should understand this. Texans yeah. are pretty it's patriotic. Like being, right? Yeah, <laughs> it definitely is a thing. So yeah. we get excited to, hey, meet someone just like us. And they, that definitely like, mm-hmm. is, a, is a factor that gets people to watch and, and give us a chance, I guess. Mm-hmm. I guess it can also kind of just show a different example. Again, these people don't fit the stereotypes. I don't have to be afraid about being boxed in or being called a race trader because they're already doing it and they seem totally fine. Uh, if they get hit with criticism, they really don't care. And we've been pretty lucky so far. I'm sure that we're going to get a lot more criticism now as we gain prominence uh, in, in some of the things that we're doing. But honestly, at this point, it's like, I'm pretty happy with what we do, how we approach it. So there's really nobody that can you know break us down, I think, at this point. And we kind of now feel like we have to hold on to that mantle of, you know, we can't let people basically dictate to us what we need to do, how we have to behave, uh, what we have, what we believe or anything like that. So we're pretty confident, I think, going forward to. Yeah, I want to go back to that because the there may be people listening who are trying to figure out what they want to do or how they can do it. And they need mm-hmm. the, I don't know, they need the spur a little bit. And you guys got spurred by KD. I got spurred by Mike. It was mm-hmm. like he grabbed me by the back of the 
mm-hmm. neck and was like, hey, you're the mental health guy of the gun community now. And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> and then <laughs> three years like, later. You guys are the Latinos in the gun community. I was like, I, don't, blah, blah, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Was that a... I mean, the way you've laid it out, it sounds like it was just a natural fit and there was no conversation. But I'm guessing there was probably some some tension, some breath holding, some risk that, you, you know, what, what were the discussions between you as a, a couple when you decided to take this on and knowing Ooh. that you were going to face the criticism? I, I see it now on Twitter when I'm posting <laughs> yeah. it. It's like people are like, I can't believe you're a therapist. You should be ashamed of yourself. I'm like, <laughs> feel free to file a complaint with my licensing board if you'd like. And then they mm-hmm. go away. Um, but how, how was that? It's a real, well, it was definitely, I think, more on my side. I was definitely the one who has the most hesitation. I do not want to be, I, I wasn't even on Facebook or Instagram for years. I, I'm very much a private person. I don't want to be online. So to me, that was huge to overcome. And um, it was something that we had to kind of debate and. Oh, yeah. No, I've, I've, told, I've told Joe a few times. I was like, if you don't want to do this anymore. Uh, the show, I, I was like, I will, I don't want to push you into something that you feel uncomfortable and or unsafe doing. I'm not going to lie. There was moments, um, not recent at all. Yeah, it's been a while now, but it's been a while, but like right around the midpoint, um, I was just like, I just don't want to do this anymore because there was a lot of negativity in the community. There was just, I didn't feel like I was doing anything. I had that imposter syndrome. I'm like, I'd rather just go back to being an anonymous person. Cause I feel like I'm not doing anything. And I don't know what it was that finally, like, I think I might have, you know, felt like I influenced someone or had a positive comment, of, you know, hey, thank you so much, because you'll still get those things. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, you know, shoot, they're right. It is, you know, it is making a difference. So I've got to just buck up and keep going and and does terrify me. I do have the the, you know, the added pressure of my parents don't mm-hmm. approve of what I do. Um, I'm you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the moment where I get criticism online. I've gotten a few times and, you know, I've been able to kind of brush it off, but I'm, I'm kind of, I still have that trepidation. Mm-hmm. I think the group of people that we've kind of surrounded ourselves with the people that mentored us in the gun community. And now even the, uh, the team at geeks and gamers, they take a lot of flack because Jeremy, the, the head of the channel, he's a huge Trump supporter <laughs> and being in the kind of entertainment space and being pro Trump, is very taboo. Mm-hmm. So they get attacked all the time. And he basically tells people to straight up F off and not care. He works a lot with Eric July that we, uh, that we gotten to interview and we see kind of their approach of how they have channels that have hundreds of thousands of subs, you know, three or 400,000 subs. And they've dealt with all these things along the way, all the criticism, and we see how they handle it and how they support one another in that group. And uh, I think, I think that will help a lot of ways that we've yeah. got a lot of strong people that have gone through crap and they're like, Screw these people, don't forget them. It's just a you know, like, yeah, there might be hard parts of doing this, but you know, and it is a lot of work because we have normal jobs. And you know, like I said, most couples like uh don't spend their evenings working together on projects like you know, to to hopefully you know influence people um and to stigmatize you know this this concept of, of of owning a firearm. Um but that's what we do. And, and, you know, that's, it's going to be worth it. And, or it is worth it. If you just stop and think about, you know, what have we, who have we, you know, like, even if it's just a couple people here or there at a time, you know, I'm not talking thousands of people every single day, but even one person a day that I kind of make a dent in, you know, influence is, is worth it, you know? Mm-hmm. And I do believe like for, for me personally, I have a very, 
Um, I've always been the kind of person who kind of puts life in balance and, and I want to make sure that I'm, you know, leaving more positive in this world, um, than negative. So to me, it's always been about, you know, whether it was when I was a kid, I was an animal rights activist. Uh, and then when I was older, I did lots of volunteer work. I'm just, I've always been, you know, make, make the world, leave the world a better place than, um, than you found it. So it's worth it. Yeah. Don't, don't worry, Joe. I quit. I quit on the gun community like 70 times. <laughs> we hear, believe me, we hear people, we hear those calls all the time. Like I'm done with this stuff. And then a week later, it's like, oh, this is the best. <laughs> so that's how yeah, I, I think it's, I wonder, I'm like, who, who, who am I helping here? You know what I yeah. mean? Just because it's, you know, I, I've been accused of everything of being anti-gun, mm-hmm. which yeah. is bizarre since I used to sell <laughs> yeah. 80,000 guns to civilians every year. But, yeah. you know, it's tough because we're very clicky. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah very Cobra Kai-ish at times, especially in certain groups. And um, you say one thing and it just taken out of context or, you know, you can get drummed out. And if you, the smart thing I think is, is kind of detaching from the social yep. media. You know, I totally stopped, you know, my, my Instagram, I used to be heavily involved. I used to check it all the time. Now I barely ever check it. I, I post mm-hmm. stuff. And I don't even go back to see what people are saying. That's but, kind of what I do. Actually. Yeah. You yeah. lose I, the algorithm though. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I noticed like, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. but uh, you know, it is what it is. It's, you know, Pinkus has always been good. Jake, Jake obviously has been good at it with me as well, but like kind of reminding me like, Hey man, like you're not doing this for those people that are annoying. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. you got to remember who you're doing it for. And then you kind of focus on that and you go back. It's like you said, you know, you get these wins. Like if I didn't have people reaching out to me saying, Hey, what, what you and the organization and Jake and everybody's doing is just saved my life. It's changed my life. And you know, you, those are the things you remember. Mm-hmm. You're like, you know, I mean, Jake and I've had these conversations where it's like someone's listened to a podcast episode and it's like really touched them, you know, mm-hmm. like in the heart. And then you're like, okay, that's what we do for. Yeah. That's awesome. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. slow and steady matters. Um, again, you know, delaying gratification, not not looking mm-hmm. for it instantly, and um, taking the small wins when you can get them. Ignoring the detractors because you know they're part of the fringe. Um, the the middle standard two deviations are probably supportive of what you do. Um, they may have their qualms, but you know, by and large, people aren't like we'd know if people hated what we would what we're doing. We would know because mm-hmm. we would cease to be relevant. And I think it's a matter of just continuing to find the strength within to keep moving forward in the face of that opposition, especially from people you respect or you know used to respect who never changed their minds. Mm-hmm. And I had to let go of a, a substantial number of peer colleagues in my own clinical community because they either didn't get it, didn't want to get it, or were actively opposing it. And I had this epiphany, I don't know, three years ago or so, two and a half years ago, when I had to make the decision to be affirmatively in both places. And I was like, my, my consumer base is not my peer colleagues. My (laughs) consumer base is the people who need help. And they vastly outnumber my peer colleagues who until that point had an outsized influence in my life. And it's like my professors, my mentors, my supervisors, um, they just fell off and it's like, that's fine. Stay, stay where you are, stay in the shadows. You're not helping mm-hmm. move humanity forward. I'm going to keep moving this way. Cause there's millions of people not, to, I mean, well, let's get down to like just the, the dozens, the dozens outnumber those people. <laughs> I've yep. already touched dozens. Now I'm moving on to hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands. And, and you guys are too. And I think that's, that's where we need to continue our focus is, for the people who never would have otherwise heard about this had you not been doing it. 
Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, you could go back and you know live your private life, Joanna. But would you though? Like when your calling is placed on your heart, can you really say point, no? Yeah. <laughs> I could not. Yeah. yeah. And that's why I've told Joe, I said, for the last few years, I really feel like I'm doing what I suppose, what I'm supposed to be doing now. And I never felt anything like that in my life, whether it was going to college, uh, you know, I have a good job, but I've never felt like, well, I'm good at my job, but it, it's not like a calling. I'm just, I'm good at it. It makes money and it's fine. But now it's really, I feel like outreach doing this, uh, being on, you know, being on YouTube is, is really a calling now and getting the message out there. And, and it becomes also, effortless. It becomes yeah, effortless, it does. right? It, when you're doing what you love. Yeah. And I even tell Joe sometimes, I'm like, I'm not going to respond to this a-hole on social media because I have a damn show. I can articulate myself with my voice, whether they watch it or not. So then nobody can really misconstrue what I say because it's not just text on a screen that you you don't know the inflection or the emotion behind it. Now they can hear, they can jump into our chat too because we do a live show and bring up points right there and I can just answer it honestly on the air and that's it. It's there. You guys can look at it through history. For better or for worse, it's always going to be there and you know where I stand and there's no confusion over it. So I, I, I like having that kind of uh, platform and the feedback immediately in the interaction with an audience I think is is great. I want to ask you guys, though, what um, what's your interest in the mental health component of this? Uh, I think it's huge. Joe, I don't know if you want to go start on this one. Well, Um, it's it's something we talk about on on the show a lot, actually, because to, for me, it's, it's a point of anger I have with politicians, because again, it's going to be like that you have two approaches to things. And I get very just upset when someone takes the lazy man's approach. So, um, the same way that, you know, it's easy to blame guns, you know, when, when you are the victim of a tragedy, instead of actually taking responsibility and, and learning to be a protector, the politicians do the same lazy thing where they blame guns and they don't actually do the work and um, do their due diligence of, of, you know, what is the policies that's wrong. Um, and, you know, we talked about it on when you guys were on our show that um, I got to see like the inside of uh, mental health, how it works and insurance companies, they don't pay for coverage and it's actually really hard and there's these all these barriers for entry to you know it's not like you're going to get you know your physical at all it's it's so much harder so for me it's personal because it's like i've seen it i've seen people who struggle to get coverage to get uh help and i just feel like to me it's there's definitely a need for uh, shining a light on that and uh destigmatizing it as well um politicians need to focus on that, you know? So I think that's multifaceted for me, you know, mm-hmm. you know, interest that, you know, I always like to talk about it. Yeah. I, I, it's, I think it's almost the key. It's really the crisis of our time, at least the healthcare crisis of our time, I think, because when you see numbers of kids with depression, young people with depression higher than ever, people commit, you know, young people taking their lives at a clip that we haven't seen before. And generally the confusion of our society without really going deeper into that, you can tell there's a crisis going on. Why are so many people overdosing on fentanyl on drugs that are laced uh, with fentanyl and things like that? Why are people taking that approach? What is it that people are missing in their lives that is driving them to uh, either isolation, the bottle, the, the uh, whether it's the pill bottle or the alcohol bottle um, do terrible things to one another 
and really just, uh, it's almost a lack of empathy uh, that we've kind of reached in this society. And I don't know where, well, I can think of a multitude of reasons why we're here. And we discussed too the lack of uh, institutions, government run institutions that deal with mental health uh, by the wayside. Multifaceted, the fact that we just have lead such empty lives because again, going back to that original point of our lives being so convenient and Mm -hmm. lacking any substance. And, you know, I think that all leads to the feeling of, when, why am I here? I don't, I don't understand yeah. what my, the point of my life is. I've seen so many youths that just kind of spiral that way. And it's just so yeah, sad. They're, they're stimulated by stuff, but they don't have any depth of uh, yeah. meaning yeah. Or, or substance. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think that we, you know, keeping up with the Joneses has always been a thing in the United States, you know, oh, my neighbor's got a really cool car. I got to get an even nicer car. But now when every single day, you can see what every wealthy person or every celebrity, like I went to this five-star restaurant for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I'm out on my yacht. I'm doing all these things. It's amazing. You can do it too. And which, by I the way, that like- was the reason, the crux of why we both, um, I don't know if we did it at the same time or I influenced you, but I, I despise social media. I feel like that is <laughs> yeah. the, the absolute like it's destruction, bad, bad, yeah. the cause of the destruction of our society. So I thought mm-hmm. you were so, going to say that's why you both chose to go into YouTube because you no. know that that's no. where the fortunes are made. No. <laughs> no. I actually don't see YouTube as social media. I really don't. I see it, it as a platform, a news platform. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a little bit of ideas, everything. But I feel yeah. like it's not the same kind of wasteland that Facebook and IG can be. Yeah, you know, but uh, but yeah, it's almost like so we we've now created a society where everything's super convenient, but at the same time, you can be permanently and perpetually jealous and be reminded of all the things that you don't have that all these other people have that you watch all the time. Whereas in the past, you kind of had a very local context to everything. So I might be a big fish in the small pond, like, hey, I'm doing great in my small town. I feel pretty good for myself. Then you go to the big city and you're like, oh man, I'm a nobody. And it makes me feel terrible. Like I don't really have anything. It's like, well, were you happy before? Are you happy with what you have and who you are? And I think we've lost sight of that. Again, it has to do with the gratitude, has to do with convenience, all of those things. Uh, anti-social media, I almost call it that because I feel like it drives some of us to isolation. And you know, all of those things combining. And also I think Joe's, Joe's heard me throw this out there. I haven't talked about it in a while, the Disneyfication of our society. And what I call basically everything became Disney-fied. Like every girl can be a princess. Every boy is going to be a prince. You can do whatever you want in you life. And if you go to college, yeah. you're going to get $100,000 a year and it's guaranteed. And the, I mean, I almost how, hate to you sound like, an, like, a bitter, like a bitter millennial because we kind of went past this, but just thinking back to high school and having guidance counselors say like, you should go to this Ivy League school just because you can. And don't think about the thirty dollars or $40,000 a year that you're going to get and the massive amount of debt that you're going to be in. So it's almost like millennials and Gen Z were sold a bill of goods that was all BS. And combining that with all the other things that our society is hitting with, you know, post 9-11 society, the crash of 2008, all of those things have exacerbated not being able to buy houses that our parents would have bought for a fraction of the price. I think all of those things combining with social media there just kind of to as the big Perfect pot storm. of stew that like is in there and we don't know how to deal with it because it's a technology that we didn't evolve with. It's like a perfect storm of a disaster that we're facing right now. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what we lament and talk about all the time. So the irony of using platforms to empower yourself that are also responsible for the destruction of the society simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> 
Jordan Peterson talks about that too. He's like, I don't know if oh, I yeah. should be on here. Right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I'm becoming what I hate. But mm-hmm. t- two things jump out at me there. One is that um, several times through the course of this, both of you at various points, it's like, did have you just been watching a lot of my stuff? Because it sounds like me <laughs> talking, um, which is great. I think I, I, I've ego, been told but, that we're pretty based. So I don't yeah. know. Maybe that's just what it is. I'm, I'm okay with that. I'll embrace based. Um, yeah. But like, you guys are really smart. You should have your own podcast. Uh, so, so no, but the Thanks, other, so we'll take that into consideration. The other thing that jumps out is that um, something that I hadn't considered before, and I know I'm probably, I don't know how I missed it because everybody else talks about that. Maybe, maybe it just clicked because we're so isolated into our own little spheres, doing the little stimuli inducing things that we do. It's like the gun community can be that commute community in its true form of togetherness. Now, social media can do that. Like you guys are in a gaming community. That's cool. Right. Mm-hmm. If you're isolated at home, pretending that you're in a community, that's, that's not it. And I think we've yeah. got a lot of that proxy representation of togetherness. That's not significant. Uh, the significant stuff does occur with shared interests and hobbies. And, and I think firearms is a great one to do that, especially for newcomers. They're like, whoa, I didn't realize like Thursday nights at the range could be so fun. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, you and your 16 or 20 best friends doing a little pistol course is pretty enjoyable. And then maybe afterward you go have drinks and talk about your marksmanship or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's a great camaraderie building event that I think we've – maybe lost, you know, you mentioned Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts before, but there's, there's a lot of diminishing enrollment in community organizations mm-hmm. all across society. And I think one of the antidotes might just be, you know, to, to cure the mental illness that's pervading, whether or not that mental illness rises to diagnostic level or is irrelevant. The point is we're suffering and, and everything sucks mm-hmm. is to reconnect. And certainly lockdowns didn't help that. But mm-hmm. if we can reconnect through things like firearms ownership hey try it out softball league hey go pick it back up if you've dropped it or bowling league if you can't run the bases mm-hmm. anymore um those those are really critical things i don't know why that eluded me uh until just now i think i think maybe i just didn't it wasn't front and center somewhere along the way it crystallized so good job bringing awesome. that to my attention even though that probably wasn't your intent yep yeah, uh, we, we talk about that a lot. Yeah, we talk like about that. that. We talk about uh, I'm not extremely religious, but there's no doubt that when you look at it, the the collapse of religion as a community kind of uh, a community. Uh, what is it? A nexus point mm-hmm. is kind of died off. I mean, when I go back to Puerto Rico in the middle of every town is a Catholic church. Yes, every town is built. Square. The church is right there with the town square. Everybody goes and hangs out there. So it's almost like we've lost that. And a lot of towns in the U.S. were like that, too. And that was kind of the center of your community. It was the church. You go there, you worship together, then you go and have lunch or do whatever afterwards, or you volunteer, you've got soup kitchens, things like that. So I think as the church has been demonized, and in some cases it's done that to itself, especially the Catholic church, it's almost like I think we have a very difficult time of separating. uh, Okay, let's take this example. If Mussolini or Stalin drove a car it's or Hitler, it's almost to the point where you can't drive a car because you're going to be like those guys. So I almost feel like that's what we have now where it's like, well, if Donald Trump tells me not to stick my finger in the outlet, I'm not going to listen to him because I hate that guy. And I feel like that's where we are now. So because there was corruption in some churches and things like that, now it's almost like everything that the church did was invalid. So we're not going to volunteer. We're not going to do any of these things. All those things are now poisoned instead of trying to find 
uh, a way to fill the vacuum for now that we've lost that for whatever reason, either because we've chosen not to go there anymore or because we feel that the institutions are corrupt. And now we're like, well, I don't have any faith I, I, in that. I, I disagree with you on, um, well, I personally grew up super Catholic. Like I know, in, I know you in did. In the church. Yes, and my, but that was own, 20 years ago. Yes, yes. That was 20 but years ago. I was ago. literally in the church yeah. like every weekend, multiple events every week. And uh, my church had some corruption in it. Yeah. And that totally ruined it. And, you mm -hmm. know, we're a weird family that is super Catholic, but we are completely uh, anti-church, if that makes any mm -hmm. sense. I think that's yeah. how a lot I of people I think that a lot that. of people can have, keep their morality, but it what they're really missing, and like we do, we, we continue to practice our religion outside of a church, mm -hmm. but what really is missing that kind of like I've noticed is whether it's a church or it's another form of community, the sense of community. So yep. that's really what is missing from a lot of people once they stop going to church and so on. Absolutely. Well, it's become like superficial too. It's mm -hmm. like this thing that just kind of like exists in the ethereal. And it's like, well, I can listen to podcasts of sermons and still get the same thing. It's like, yeah. well, you're getting knowledge, but you're not getting connectivity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's not the same thing. And to your point, Joe, um, I'm a recovering Catholic too. Risk <laughs> um, and, and I found, you know, I found, I never thought I'd be part of a church community and I'm going to my church regularly and I teach sometimes on Sundays and in the pastor's stead when he's gone and, um, serving on the church council. I was like, man, in my twenties, I never thought that was going to be the case. Like never, mm -hmm. ever, I was never going to go back. And turns out that lacking thing was necessary in my life. And I think people realize at a deep intrinsic level, they, they need not only connectivity, but they need connectivity over something larger than themselves. And it used to be religion, uh, little R, not capital R. I think big R yep. religion has ruined a lot of it because it's become its own brand of authoritarianism, mm -hmm. which comes with uh, unscrupulous activities by the leaders in charge. And so that becomes very off-putting. And then they say, ah, screw it, I don't want to be a part of that anymore. And I, I could yeah. number many people who've taken that route, and they're miserable. Uh, and they don't know why. And I'm like, hey, you can get back to church. No, I'm never doing that again. It's like, well, not that church, maybe a different church, or maybe that church mm -hmm. has reinvented itself, right? Um, or maybe your church becomes baseball because baseball is bigger than you and it always has been and always will be you know like nature is a great great church find a group of nature conserv conservationists and go go out into nature yeah. um, but you got to reconnect you got to get got to get back into some level of spirituality um that's not an escapism spirituality um mm -hmm. drug drug induced you know not that that can't help connect but it shouldn't be your only crutch mm -hmm. so um great points and, you know I want to be mindful of time. We started late because of my goof, um, <laughs> but um, it's been really great. And I really, really thank you guys for carving out time. And um, Mike always has to conclude with his question to our guests. So, but out of the <laughs> yeah, way no, it's, it's been great having both of you on here. Um, Thanks for having us, man. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah. And actually, I was, I, to be honest, I had a little bit of a concern that we talked last week because I was like, man, I hope we just don't repeat the same show, but we just had a completely different show. <laughs> No you know way. I mean? No, so, it was totally different. It was great. Yeah, I, I, so. I told Joe, cause I was like, we've got the thing at six. And it's like, okay. I was like, you know, we don't get nervous about interviews anymore. I was like, well, it's Mike and Mike and Jake. Like it's just yeah. conversation it's with friends. Conversation. So it's, yeah. it was a lot of fun. So, yeah, no, this is, this is great. Um, so how do you both tend to your mental health? What do you do? Obviously you have the video game aspect, which mm -hmm. I think is like a way of, you know, to, to kind of blow off steam and everything like that. But how else do you tend to your mental health? I think it's having each other. And uh, I think having a partner in life is a huge 
boon for anybody, especially if you're a male, because you know how men are. We tend to keep everything inside and we don't care about ourselves a lot of times and we just do whatever we want. So having a, a woman in my life to balance me out, uh, to challenge me and to be my partner really helps. Uh, I think that, you know, being able to talk about my own concerns and be not feeling embarrassed to talk to my wife whenever I feel I might feel scared or weak about something and saying, like, I feel this way and she's not going to bite my head off or say that, oh, well, you're you're weak or man up or anything like that, that she will listen to me and be there for me. I think that that helps more than anything else. I think having a good support system beyond that, having my family be there um, really helps a lot as well. And I think I'm pretty fortunate for that. I run a lot. <laughs> She's a runner. She's a track star. Uh, That's how I stay balanced. I mean, you help too. I know. Just kidding, just kidding. Uh, I love it's you. good though. No, you, I mean, that's not a throwaway point though. I mean, running exercise in general, but running mm -hmm. specifically, we've got numerous studies, overwhelming research that suggests that exercise outperforms SSRIs when it comes to mood stabilization uh, every single time. And mm -hmm. uh, it's, that's great. I mean, I'm glad you shared that because I think that's really yeah. important. Um, so thank you for sharing that. It's not, that's not a throwaway point. <laughs> um, well, uh, Rolla and Jonna, uh, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you, please. Yes, you can find us where the locked end with an ampersand loaded Latinos. You can find us pretty much on Twitter, IG, YouTube, uh, YouTube being our most important platform. You can also find us on Twitch if you're interested in watching video games. And we also produce and help uh, assist running Geeks and Gamers Play, which is one of the Geeks and Gamers uh, YouTube channels. So you can check us out there as well. So if you're interested in things like video games, you can check out. Uh, we'll probably be on there at some point. Sometimes we'll only be there till five. I'm hosting morning. tonight with the, the members, uh, with the, the subscribers of the channel playing video yeah. games. We actually tonight, just had so. a really fun doing a uh, together review for a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles review. Okay. Yep. So yeah. first, first video game review we ever did. And we're happy. I was like, it's the video that has more views than any view that we've ever done, but it's not on our channel, but it's, it's awesome. But it was fun. It. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, individually, uh, are you still doing things individually, Locked and Low Latina and Puerto Rican Pistolero? Or is it uh, all we kind of do everything together, but yeah. Joe's much more active on IG uh, as Latina Locked and Loaded. I really haven't done stuff for Puerto Rican Pistolero in forever. I'm kind of admin the Locked and well, Loaded I still, Latino stuff. I still, because I am a female and that's still another part of representation, <laughs> you know, I am, um, I am in the DC project and I'm actually really looking forward to the first year i'm going to be going to washington dc i, didn't know I got That's invited cool. to go yeah so i'm really looking forward to that so i do a lot i do some stuff on my own well joe's been in uscca magazine like two or three times three, three times, times already yeah so she's got more a lot more involvement in that uh in that aspect of things so, so I, I i do still try to to do stuff mm -hmm. <laughs> on my own stand on my own which is again really hard for me because it's like never thought that would be uh the case but um but yeah <laughs> You can't ignore the calling when it comes for you. Definitely not. Well, thank you both on behalf of our uh, partners, certainly my uh, organization, my, my agency here, Zephyr Wellness, uh, on behalf of Arms Corps, which has been a solid sponsor for us since uh, the very beginning. And now Ruger has uh, stepped in and uh, nice. given us some very substantial support. Um, on behalf of the Walk the Talk America crew, broadly, and Michael for founding it and working tirelessly 
and all the self-sacrifices he's made. I'm proud to be a part of this. I'm proud to know people like you guys and all the names that you mentioned before. Uh, it's a really good community, and I'm excited to continue being a part of it as those same folks, including yourselves, have helped shepherd me into it and show me the ropes. Uh, it's uh, an exciting calling, I guess you could say, for me that I never never saw coming. So, uh, Thanks, everybody. Share. Definitely give us a rating and review. Uh, apparently that helps traction. And uh, try to recruit your friends to come into this uh, both and of guns and mental health. In the meantime, we wish you all great mental wellness. Take care. You know, it's become part of just what we do.